to you. Um, let me add my welcome to the one that Becca's already given. If you're new, I'm Philip. I lead the team here, one of the pastors. And uh, Karen and I are just in the middle of kind of holiday time at the moment. So it's just really nice in between holidays to, to be with you together. We wouldn't, didn't think we could do four Sundays without you. So we've, we're back in between a little bit of holiday time. Uh, and the passage that we're in this morning, because we teach from the Bible here every week, if you are new, is Daniel uh, chapter 5. Uh, and the, the context behind both the book and our series is a simple one, really. We're kind of asking the question uh, through the book of Daniel, through the Word of God, what does it look like if you're a Christian? Uh, what does it look like to live in a context uh, which is different to that which you will one day be in? That's a very convoluted way of saying the Bible talks about Christians as being citizens of heaven, having a heavenly city, a heavenly inheritance. At the same time, we are planted here in an earthly city. And we're asking the question, how do those of us who are counted as Christians, who are heavenly citizens, how do we love and serve the earthly city uh, for the time that we are we are here, especially or specifically when the earthly city is increasingly apathetic or even hostile to the God of the Bible, because that's the context in which Daniel finds himself in all those years ago. He's taken from one place to another where his God is, is not honored and served. He's an exile, a citizen of one place, but he finds himself in a citizen of a different place. So we're asking the same question, I think, that Daniel was asking all those years ago. We're in chapter five this morning. The historical context is this, that... Um, since the last chapter that Mark taught on last week, history has moved on. Uh, and so we've moved on to 539 BC. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, this kind of incredible king of Babylon, has passed away. And as was often the case in the ancient world, that's followed by a, uh, a time of infighting and assassinations and so on. And by 539 BC, the guy we're about to meet is, is called Belshazzar. And he is the king, probably a kind of co-regent of, of some sort. Uh, and we're about to see what befalls him uh, in the final days of his life and indeed the Babylonian Empire. So here we go. First one of uh, chapter five would be great. Thank you, Ryan. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, meaning his ancestor, his, his predecessor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall Near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched as the hand the watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. In other words, he was terrified, and, and none of Belshazzar's great wise men and astrologers can tell him what these words, these mysterious words mean. Uh, and then the queen, or the queen mother probably, reminds Belshazzar, you've forgotten about Daniel. You've forgotten about this gifted, wise man that served Nebuchadnezzar so well. He was great at interpreting stuff of a supernatural nature. You want to get him in. So Belshazzar, who was going to try anything because he's so terrified, brings Daniel in and says, if you can interpret these mysterious words on the wall, um, basically the kingdom is yours. I'll give you a purple robe, a chain around your neck, and you'll be the third most powerful man in the kingdom. Verse 17. 
Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. And that's the previous chapter that Mark taught on last week. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, you drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mine, mine, tekel, parsin, which are four Aramaic words or kind of derivatives or double meanings from Aramaic words. So people would have probably read the words and realized they were Aramaic, but it's the meaning behind them, the sort of double meaning that only Daniel is able to uh, reveal. Verse 26, here is what these words mean. Mine, God has numbered. Mine meant numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Pretty sobering message. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Interesting passage, isn't it? Kind of otherworldly in some senses, but also comes straight to the heart of what it is to, uh, to live in our times as well. And one of the questions I think we've been asking throughout this series, and I hope you've been asking if you've been reading Daniel, especially if, if you're a Christian, is, is how can I live like Daniel? Because you can't, you can't help but be inspired by this extraordinary guy, can you? As you read his life afresh, the, the courage with which he lived, the, the grace and the humility with which he lived, the, the way that he was able to take the gifts and the power that he had and, and used his power and gifts to bless and not oppress, the way that he's not threatened by a society that rejects his God completely and even threatens him with his life. He's an extraordinary person, 
He's an extraordinary citizen of the God of heaven who yet lives in the city of earth with just a remarkable combination of humility, courage, boldness, wisdom, and so on. And so I think we can all agree that our, our families, I know my family, w- would benefit from Daniel uh, in, in, in its household. Our, our neighborhoods would benefit from Daniel's. Our, our church would benefit from, from Daniel's. Our government, our future prime minister, uh, our nation would benefit from more men and women who live in the earth city like Daniel, right? And I don't know about you, but I've been inspired by him. But, or and, as much as Daniel, and as much as this text, again, the kind of humility and the courage with which he operates inspires us, I want to, in this message, just bookend what it is to be inspired by Daniel with what it also is to be warned by Belshazzar and changed by Jesus. Because this text is, I think, doing all, all, all three things. First of all, it's warning us Before inspired by Daniel, let's just let ourselves be warned by Belshazzar and ultimately changed by Jesus. What do I mean by being warned by Belshazzar? Well, warnings are useful, right? Warnings are good. If warnings are based on truth and come from a place of love, warnings are good. Okay, so even though I'm about to warn you from the word of God, I I hope it comes uh, from a place of truth and grace, as it always did with Jesus, at least. The first warning that I think we can take from the life of Belshazzar, if you want to live like Daniel in our earthly city, is that Belshazzar doesn't live with an appropriate wartime mentality. It's not a very pithy point, but he doesn't live with an appropriate wartime mentality. What do I mean by that? A bit of history for you. History tells us that in 539 BC, just as Daniel's dr- interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 had predicted, the Medo-Persian Empire are about to take over the city of Babylon and indeed the Babylonian Empire. And we know this because Belshazzar dies and all happens in this passage. So this is literally probably the night before the Medo-Persians under Cyrus sweep in the city. So the question is, what on earth is Belshazzar doing having a massive party the night before? And we, th- we think, historians think, or biblical scholars and historians suggest that because of the defences of the Babylonian city, Belshazzar is just supremely confident. They had such incredible defenses of their walls. They had these amazing systems of rivers and heights of water. They were convinced nobody could breach the walls. Obviously, they had soldiers and armies as well. But Belshazzar is just so supremely confident, he's having a party when he should be at war or about to prepare to be at war. What's my point? It's this, that a citizen of heaven Somebody who's a Christian who counts their ultimate inheritance in heaven should live with a wartime mentality. That's an appropriate way to live. Not, of course, in the sense of being physically violent or verbally violent. The New Testament's so clear that a Christian is somebody that loves their enemies, prays for their enemies. But we live spiritually with a wartime mentality. We don't live like Belshazzar, just kicking back naive about the threats that we face. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And the reality of being a Christian is that we have an enemy. We looked at this in our series in 1 John. 
we, we reminded ourselves that we have an enemy. His name is Satan, the devil. He's prowling around, the Bible says, like a lion seeking to devour. He's the Medo-Persians at the wall looking for any single crack in the walls that he can find to derail the, the joy and the abundant life that a Christian is entitled to as if it is like in Christ. But I'm not sure I always live with a wartime mentality. Do I put on the armor of God each day? Do I consider, not from a place of fear, but a place of wisdom, the, the threats that the enemy would love to, to pick out in my life to derail my joy in Christ? But yet the Bible tells me he's prowling like a lion, seeking to devour. That's how much he hates Christians. He hates the church. And sometimes in the Western church, perhaps, we can kind of feel quite comfortable. Life is often quite reasonably good, I'm not saying I'm not for a second demeaning things we're going through, but the Western church is often quite comfortable and we forget that maybe that's because we are naive about the threats that the enemy has and the things that he's doing. So first point of application is, do we, do you, if you are a Christian, do you live with a wartime mentality? Are you getting up each day ready to be cognitively aware of the weaknesses you have and the way the enemy might expose them and then to wage war against him with the, by the grace of God and the tools that you've been given in Christ. Second warning is linked to this and it's a bit more pithy and the word is sin. There's a warning here about sin in our lives from Belshazzar's life. If we are to live as a joyful, courageous, secure, wise, impactful citizen of earth. And I was really struck by the quite sophisticated, nuanced way, if you like, that this text describes sin. And I'm thinking uh, particularly of verses 22 and 23. The word sin, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, hasn't got much currency anymore, I guess, in, in our kind of culture. And even in church life, we kind of don't always uh, necessarily define sin. But I think there are three ways that this text and the Bible as a whole helpfully defines sin and therefore warns us of it. Let me read it to you again. Verse 22, this is Daniel speaking to Belshazzar again, translating his, or interpreting this, this uh, curious written word. You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart that you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. What Daniel is saying in simple terms is, Belshazzar, you've sinned. And, 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 your, and the writing's on the wall and your comeuppance is coming very soon. But he also defines sin for us quite helpfully. I wonder if you can see the different ways that sin comes through. The first way that sin can trip us up as Christians is we misuse what is holy. We misuse what is holy. That's what um, Belshazzar does. He takes these temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had originally nicked from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he takes them out and he uses them not for sacred worship of a holy God in the temple of God. He uses and he fills them with wine and he has a debauched party with all his mistresses. So we might say, well, what have I got in common with this kind of pagan king in the ancient world having a party? Well, we can all do that in some way. We can all take what is holy and we can, we can misuse it. That's what holy means. Holy means in the Bible, set apart. Set apart. 
That's, God, that's why God is, is so holy, because he's set apart from his people in the Old Testament. That's what, why a, what a Christian is designed to be, somebody who is set apart, not to be sort of obnoxious and arrogant or to hide away, but to be holy for the glory of God. Holiness is to be set apart for the glory of God. And these vessels, that's what they were for only to be used in the temple for sacrifices, for, for causing people to be able to approach God through the priestly system, and here they are being used for anything but. And we can do that, can't we? We can take what is for a holy purpose, and, and we can misuse it. Our bodies, for example. The Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, vessels. They're like these cups, or what, are they, what these cups are pointing to. They're temples of the Holy Spirit. And we can take what is holy and we can misuse it, either through what we put into it, through sexually, through what we choose to mull our, our, our thought processes on, through not looking after the bodies that God's given us to use as a gift for his glory. These bodies of ours are set apart for the holiness and for the goodness and the glory of God. Just one possible application. And you can, you know, there's a whole series of messages there around how we use our, our bodies and what they are to us and what they're not to us and so on. But just a brief application to consider. Secondly, what about our words? Part of our bodies. These mouths we've been given are so powerful, aren't they? These words that we can speak are so powerful. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, meaning a word can bring such life and growth and flourishing and health and encouragement and joy. Your tongue has the power of life. And, but, a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. And we can take what are, if you, if you like, holy, our body's words, things that we've been given to use for the glory of God and for the blessing of people, and we can, we can misuse words. So we can, we can trip up like Belshazzar. We can take something that's holy, that's set apart, and we can fill it with the opposite of what it's meant to be filled with. Second way that this text describes sin is that we can make idols of created things. So firstly, we can misuse what is holy. Secondly, we can make an idol of created things. That's what Belshazzar does. He takes the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and denies God. And again, we can think, ah, oh, this is ancient world, a pagan king, you know, making statues out of bronze and wood. Like, you know, we kind of moved on from those backward people. But that's, we can do exactly the same thing, but just in a, in a 21st century Western sense. We take created things and we put them in the place of God. Happens, happens all the time. And the good, way to dis, the good way to discern whether you've got an idol is, is, to, is to ask yourself, what do I want the most in life? What do I want the most? What do I love the most? That doesn't mean that to love your children or to, to pursue marriage or to want to be promoted or to be a success at work or bad things. Quite the opposite. But if something is the biggest thing, it's what we want the most, if it's where our thoughts nearly always go to, if the thought of losing it crushes us rather than disappoints us, that's an indication that maybe we're actually falling into the trap that Belshazzar fell into of taking created things and exchanging them for the creator. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans 1 about sin. He says sin is an exchange. It's a fatal cosmic exchange. We swap the creator where our worship is intended to go and we swap the creator for the created. And actually it's, it's our reputation at work. It's our desire to be married. It's our desire to be sexually active. It's our, our desire to be well thought of. 
It's our desire to be healthy. That actually somehow slips onto the throne where only God should be. We've all got those things that are, find themselves uh, becoming statues. Let's not be too quick to dismiss Belshazzar. And the third way that the text describes sin is just outright rebellion, <laughs> just disobedience. That's ultimately what Belshazzar has done. He's, he's misused what is holy. He has exchanged a, the creator for the created. And thirdly, he's just rejected God. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored, Daniel says. And that's probably the third way that sin is described. It's just, it's a rejection of God. We just reject who God is and what he has to say. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, all three of those things, rejecting God, misusing what is holy, making the idol of what's created, all three of those things are the sin that keeps us from God. And Jesus is here this morning to offer us forgiveness of that and entry into the family of God. And if we are a Christian, we can still be rebellious towards God. We can still do that. We can still be in church, loving God, loving his people, wanting to see uh, his kingdom extend and his, and his kingdom grow. And, but there'll be certain things where we'll just say, not outright because we're a bit too clever for that, but we'll just by the way we live, we'll say, I, just, I do not accept your lordship, God. I know that your word teaches about giving the best of my finances to the kingdom of God generously, regularly, generous, uh, cheerfully and sacrificially, but I will not do it. I know that your word says that, that sex is this amazing, beautiful gift to be enjoyed in the context of the gift of marriage, but I will not obey that. I know that these people who I've been joined to in the body of Christ are my brothers and sisters in Christ and I'm called to lay my life down for them but I will not forgive that person. Yeah, we can all do it. We can all, in different ways, we can all say to God what Belshazzar said which is I do not obey you. At least in certain areas. I hope these warnings are coming across in the context in which they're meant. And you know, I, I, had a, I have a good dad who, who, when he warned me, it came out of truth and love. And I hope these are, are coming uh, similarly. Even this morning, I was actually just, I'll leave it at that. But I do want you to consider what God might be saying to you this morning. But as much as we, as well as being warned by Daniel, sorry, warned by Belshazzar, I also want us to not drift just how, I also want us to not leave how stark it is for Belshazzar because he doesn't heed the warning. He doesn't heed the warning. Isn't it tragic that at the end of the passage, he, he obviously agrees with what um, Daniel has interpreted because he gives him the, the purple robe and the golden chain and the third most powerful role in the kingdom. That's it. So he basically says, yes, Daniel, you're right. The kingdom is yours. And he dies. <laughs> what, what happened there? What happened in his heart that meant he could sort of cognitively assent to the truth of the reality of God and his supremacy and then not do anything about it in his heart? What happened there? And how tragic that he then died apart from God, unrepentant of God. He had to stand before God with all of his sin. And so I would just would urge you, please don't do a Belshazzar. Whether you are a Christian and you're agreeing with what I'm saying cognitively, but you're going to do nothing about it. I'm not saying you're going to die in your bed tonight. But please don't, but you might. 
You might. That's the same if you're, if you're, if you're not a Christian. Please don't nod and say, well, I guess that sounds, I've been around church for a while, that, that might sound true, but God is real and good and true and, and he's holy and set apart and so I'm not gonna present all of my darkness in front of him and hope to stand and then leave it there because Belshazzar left it there and he died. So I wonder whether for some of you, this phrase that we use in uh, common parlance, the writings on the wall, we use that, don't we? I.e., it's inevitable. That comes from this passage. It's echoed down the centuries. We've adopted it. Every culture has adopted this phrase, oddly. The writings on the wall, meaning it's going to happen. Don't cognitively assent to the idea that God's reality and God's judgment is coming and is the writing on the wall and then do nothing about it. Number two, as well as being warned by Belshazzar, let's also be inspired by Daniel. It's appropriate to be inspired by these incredible men and women in the Bible. Hebrews 6 says that we should be imitators of those through faith and patience. Sorry, we should be imitators of those who who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitators of those. I want to imitate Daniel's humility and security. We were talking about this in our life group this week. I would love to imitate, and by imitate I mean be like, not pretend. I would love to have his combination of humility and security. Bear in mind, he was Nebuchadnezzar's chief advisor. He did incredible things. He ultimately even brought Nebuchadnezzar to God. Nebuchadnezzar did what Belshazzar didn't do and ultimately surrendered and bowed the knee before God. And yet Daniel clearly has been forgotten about for 20 years because Belshazzar doesn't know who he is. He has to be brought out. Why doesn't Daniel say when he's brought out, right, finally, I was wondering when I might get my chance again. I was pretty important in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, thanks very much. Second most important person, person in the country. No, nothing of that at all. So, all the time, he's so humble. He never grasps at any material possessions. They come his way. Because wealth is not bad, it can be used for amazing good. He never grasped at material possessions. He bluntly says in verse 17, you can keep your rewards. I'll, I'll tell you the truth, but you can, you can keep your rewards and your money. So humble. So humble. There's other times in the book where he just automatically says, I'm not the one bringing the interpretation. I'm not the one bringing the power that you need. That's the God of heaven. I'm a signpost to him. Such a humble man. And he's so secure. So secure, he gets his life threatened. Still doesn't bow down. Next week, Patrick will talk from chapter six, Daniel in the lion's den. So secure that he can say, you can kill me, I'm not gonna stop praying. He speaks truth to power. If I was him, I'd be tempted to misrepresent the interpretation on the wall and say, what that means, Belshazzar, is that your reign is gonna go on forever. You're a wonderful king. I probably wouldn't do that, but it might be tempting. Just speaks it as it is. Speaks truth to power. So secure, so humble. But as much as Daniel is there to inspire us, as are all these great men and women of the Bible, Daniel ultimately is there to point us to Jesus. He's a a shadow of Jesus. If you read the Old Testament as it's meant to be written, you can see glimpses of Jesus all the time. He's there. Little shadows of Christ coming through in different ways. Both the need for him and the nature of him are coming through all the time. And Daniel is ultimately there not to show us that if we try hard, we can live like him. Daniel's there to show us that we need someone like him. 
to change us. Because, I don't know about you, as much as I have felt warned by Belshazzar, sobered at least, and inspired by Daniel, I, I still am like Belshazzar sometimes. I don't always live with a wartime mentality. I get casual and, and passive. And listen, by the way, when I, get, when I say wartime mentality, I don't mean like being, a, being an ascetic. I'm not saying we're being minimalist and we just uh, don't enjoy the good things of life and of our creation. I'm going on holiday again this week and I shall enjoy beer and ice cream and sleep. Or at least the first two. I shall enjoy beer and ice cream. I'm not saying it's about being minimalistic and ascetic. A wartime mentality has to do with living sober-mindedly and aggressively pushing back on the schemes of the enemy, both in my life and in those for whom I love and care. I don't always do that. I get casual and passive, lazy. I do sin like Belshazzar. We all do. We misuse what is holy. We make idols of things, often good things, and we make them the ultimate thing. We do sometimes reject God. We disobey him. So what then? I've been warned, but I can't change. And unlike Daniel, as much as I'm inspired by him, I, I'm not always as humble as him. I do get prideful. Maybe you do too. I'd love to be as secure as him. I'm not buffeted either by massive praise or by death threats. But I do. I'd love to serve and serve and consistently, always like him, serving, 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 wherever I get back in response, but we don't always serve like him. We want to be acknowledged and thanked. We don't want to be forgotten about for 20 years and then wheeled out again. So what do I do? If I'm warned by Belshazzar, but I can't change, and I'm inspired by Daniel, but I can't be like him. Well, it's good news. That's why Jesus is our answer, because he's here, here, in this room, ready to change us by his spirit to be not just more like Daniel, but more like him. Because Daniel points us to Jesus. Even Belshazzar points us to Jesus. Daniel's a type of Christ. Belshazzar's an anti-type of Christ. You get both. Jesus did live with a wartime mentality all the time. Not physically, aggressively, quite the opposite. But he lived. One John says that he came in order to defeat the schemes of the devil. That's why he came. And all the way to the cross, he's living with that mentality in mind. I am here to smash the schemes of the enemy. Colossians 2 verse 15 tells us he did it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over uh, them in him. How do you deal with a wartime mentality? Trust Jesus this morning. He did it perfectly for you. It's going to help you. How do you resist temptation? Trust Jesus, who resisted every temptation known to man, perfectly, every time, for you. Every time pride was lurking, smashed it. Every time self-pity was lurking, another form of pride, smashed it. Every time lust was creeping there, or entitlement, or a desire to lash out, every time he beat it and stayed pure, every single time. So that you can. How How do I serve the city the workplace, the school, the hospital, the office. I can't serve like Daniel always. Look at Jesus. He didn't just serve the city. The Bible says he wept over it. Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept over those people. Elsewhere it says he has compassion for the crowds. How do I grow in compassion for this town? Try harder? Be more. I look at Jesus who wept over a city for me, for us. 
How do I speak truth like Daniel? How do I stand up to Belshazzar and say, listen, here's how, here's how it looks. Here's what ultimate reality really is. Ultimate reality is not that we're all here by accident, chance, time, and, 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 and chance, and one day it's all going to disappear. That'll be it. Ultimate reality is there is a God of heaven who created us for his worship and for his glory, and we've exchanged that and swapped it. And we've misused our bodies and our words and our times and our talents and our worship. And if we're going to stand in front of that God one day and say, is everything okay between us? It's not. How do we speak words of truth? We look at Jesus who came in grace and truth. And he never once took a backward step. He spoke truth every single time. Including to the religious people who hated him for it. Even when he was silent, Jesus was speaking and communicating truth. How do I grow in humility? I look to Jesus, the humblest person ever walked the earth, the ultimate citizen of heaven, who left the glory of heaven, so humble was he, and was born as a little baby who humbled himself to having his nappy changed. God did that. <laughs> humbled himself all the way to the cross. How do I grow in security? I look at Jesus. Who, who, who heard the word spoken over himself uh, in Mark 1 by the Father. That is my son in whom I am well pleased. Before we do anything else, I, I will always say this to you, King's Church, look at Mark 1 and allow your unity with Christ, if you believe in Christ, to apply Christ's receiving of those words to yourself. In other words, what the Father spoke over Jesus then, if you're a Christian, he speaks over you now. That is my son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's how you live secure. And finally, let the, the final signpost to Jesus, because he's the one that's going to change us this morning. His gospel is going to change us. Did you notice the, the cross-like parallels at the very end? Daniel is given a purple robe by Belshazzar to honor him for his service. Half a century later, Jesus was given a purple robe. Remember that? Having been flogged in an inch of his life. Not to honor him, but to mock him, scorn him. Daniel had a, a, a chain of gold hung around his neck. Jesus had a crown of thorns rammed into his skull. Daniel was made the third most powerful person in the kingdom, given that title on his office off his door and Jesus was given the title the king of the Jews above the cross on which he was crucified let Daniel inspire you by all means I hope he does let Belshazzar warn you this morning oh, I hope it does but let's let Jesus change us yeah being warned doesn't actually necessarily change us being inspired doesn't change us might do for a bit but long term deep deep change is a supernatural thing. You don't get rid of pride and fear and insecurity and all those things and rebellion and idolatry. You don't get rid of the mixed up stuff of the human condition by trying hard or by finding other ways that will dress it up but ultimately come down to you doing it. It doesn't work. 
But there is a God in heaven who humbled himself, who didn't just speak words of truth to Belshazzar in 539 BC, but who humbled himself 539 years later and came down to earth and dwelt in the midst of the messiness of human brokenness. And he loved us and he loves you. And he wants you, not just to be a Daniel. He's got bigger dreams for you than that. He wants you to be like him, <laughs> like Jesus. That's the promise of the Bible, that he will complete the work that he started. And that one day, we will see Jesus face to face and <laughs> be, <laughs> be like him. <laughs> what? <laughs> like Jesus is that true could that be true could the gospel be the news that broken fallible people like you and I are going to be changed bit by bit that one day we'll be like Jesus Christ God himself not that we're going to worship ourselves we're going to worship him Please don't, don't, keep the, don't lower the bar on what God has got in mind for you. Be sobered by the reality of sin and judgment and its despicable effects. Kill it every day by the grace of God and the word of God. Help each other. Kill it. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. Allow yourself to be lifted to see what Jesus is like the good news of his gospel and how by the power of his spirit he wants to make you like him so that his kingdom which is coming will start to seep out more and more into this town into this city uh, Just have a, we're just going to have a little time of response and prayer. I wonder whether a band could join us to help us do that. Uh, <laughs> clunking, clunking gear shift. It doesn't need to be a clunking gear shift because God's here. He's with us. He wants to change us and affect us. Uh, yeah, well, let's follow Bobby and Mike's example and stand up. That seems a good, good way to go about it. Let's stand together. And uh, you can stand and do a whole number of things. You can stand and if you're new to all of this and you are confused, offended, that's fine. I'm glad that you're with us. You can use these standing moments to consider. If you are with us and you think, do you know what? I do not want to be Belshazzar. I don't want death to come and find myself standing in front of God without being forgiven and made holy. Then in a moment, I just want you to raise your hand and we're going to pray for you that you would come into the family of God through forgiveness in Christ. And then the other people that I would love to respond, those of us who are already Christians, and just from whatever has spoken to this point, you think there's something here I just need to, I just need to step into. And I'm not going to repeat everything I've just said. I also don't want to, we're not here to expose. So just, if anything around being warned, around being inspired, but ultimately around being changed, you feel like, I just, I just need the Spirit of God to fall upon me and begin to change me more like Jesus. Could you just raise your hand and we're going to just together respond and pray and then we'll worship. And if you're not a Christian this morning or you thought you were and you realized you're not and you want to step into the family of God and know the love of God now and forever and have total sureness and certainty that when you do pass away the eternity of heaven awaits not the eternity of hell. 
If you want to step into the family of God, the family of heaven, can you too just raise your hand and I'd love to pray with you as well. Thank you. That's great. That's really encouraging. So two prayers. One for the person that just put their hand up and anybody else that's about to join me to become a Christian. And one for those who are Christians. Lord, I thank you for that person and anybody else who right now chooses to raise their hand. That hand is up to say, I turn from my own sin. Whether it's been disobeying God, whether it's been making idolatrous exchange where the created things become the ultimate things, whether it is misusing what was set apart for holy purposes, I'm sorry. And I'll just say the next bit after me. I thank you so much that you loved me enough not to leave me in my sin, but to come and save me from it. And so today I choose to trust that your perfect life, your substitutionary death, and your victorious resurrection is everything I need to make me perfect and holy and to know the love of God right now and forever. Amen. And for the rest of us, let me just pray. I pray that I hope will just help you. And you can repeat it in your own hearts. And if you're next to somebody that you know and they've got their hand up or their hands out, can you just lay hands on them just to add to the blessing and the goodness of God? Just be family together. It might involve moving. Done that, for those of you who done that prayer training, could you, and you're not about to respond, could you lay hands on someone and bless them and pray for them? And I'll pray for you and just allow you and the person with you to join in and then we will sing together. Heavenly Father, whether each of us have been warned or inspired or a combination of the two, we thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. And we give to you right now that which you've spoken to us about. Just name it either out loud or in your heart to to God. He knows anyway, but he loves his children to speak to him and to ask him for help and change. And so Jesus, we now take hold of your promise to give us the Holy Spirit who would lead us into all truth. And we say, Holy Spirit, would you come on each of these precious, precious people, beloved sons and daughters, And would you empower them and bless them and perhaps through confession and repentance lead them into an increased experience of being more like Jesus. That they might grow in joy and peace and confidence and humility. And that the kingdom of heaven might be more known in their life and in those around them that this church might flourish through this moment of response, that marriages and parents and children 
and housemates and work colleagues might experience the blessings of heaven through each of these people responding right now. Raise their perspective to the glory of Jesus Christ and the promise that he is going to complete the work that he started. And I pray now as we minister to each other, as we pray and prophesy over each other, as we stand and worship and declare the incredible nature of Jesus Christ who humbled himself for us and for the glory of God, for every single one of us would we come closer to you in these moments. Help us to worship, help us to respond, help us to joyfully submit to you and your word. Amen.